stocks, bonds, ETFs, straight out of downtown Chicago. This is Zach's Market Edge. Welcome to Zach's Market Edge, the podcast about investing in your life. I'm your host, Tracy Reinick, and this week I'm joined by Zach's chief equity strategist, John Blank, who is also an economist, remember, to talk about, of course, the economy. And he's back on to talk about the pressing question everybody has, is a recession coming? What should you do, if anything, as a stock investor? And what is the Fed going to be doing next? So welcome back, John. Tracy, we're going to talk about the dreaded recession word. You know, we're never going to get rid of this subject. It's good that we do this all the time. I know. Uh, It's been a couple months, but now the Fed has raised since the last time we discussed this. They only did the 25 basis points, but now everybody seems kind of convinced that they may do 50 coming up here in May. And we've had a couple more inflation numbers coming in. We had 7.9% on CPI in February. We're waiting on the March number. When we're recording this on April 5th, it's not out yet. Um, some are hoping, obviously, that it's maybe going to start to uh, you know, fall a bit in the next couple of months. But I may be one of the few that's not that hopeful about that March number, especially given what's happening with food and energy. Obviously, that can get stripped out. But uh, also with the the COVID outbreaks over in China really hitting the supply chain further. Like the last thing we needed right now was, you know, shutdowns of major Chinese cities. But that's what's happening. Um, So so where do we stand right now on the recession issue and everything else? Well, first of all, there is a recession. There are actually two recessions in the world right now. One is in mainland China, as you pointed out. The other is in Russia. Yes. Okay. Yes, that makes sense. And I did look at the PMI manufacturing numbers for everywhere but Austria and Ireland in the EU, and they're all at 15 and 18 month lows. Okay. Because the natural gas crisis created by the sanctions is is prompting a loss of a year and a half of development of Mac, Mac manufacturing in Europe. Yeah. So they are in a slowdown. There's bona fide massive recession in Russia. It's like a 20% decline. And in China with the shutdowns, it's actually quite similar and you're you're right to point it out. Right. And these, these people are, are but as you also know, and you've done a good job as, as my student here over the years, these are manufactured recessions. There right. are more repressions repressions than they are recessions because it's not really cyclical. Correct. These I feel oh, for sure in the with China, you know, they're gonna reopen eventually. Right. And things will bounce back over there. Yeah, and this will get to the point that. You know, we basically saw a repression, a public policy repression that we bounced back with from two years. And this is creating the real issue that we are talking about today is that we were already at the top of the cycle. Now we're back to it now. So we're really talking about a recession that we didn't get rid of in 2019. It's just showing up as a worry in 2022. Okay. Now, this is what gets confusing, and I don't think there is. Uh a debate that's definitive on this. It's just one we need to have and we're having. But what happens when you go to full employment, but before you do, 
you do a public health repression, release trillions of dollars of stimulus, run the mortgage-backed bond buying out for monthly for, for you know, $120 billion for two and a half years, create a housing bubble, and then get to full employment. Well, it's it's going to be hard to unwind all of this. Yeah. <laughs> Very difficult. Hey, we got ourselves in a situation. Yeah, correct. I feel like the housing component is also underappreciated, that the Fed has to navigate what's going to happen with that part of the economy, which remains red hot, even as the rates are now at about 5% for the 30-year fixed. So far, it's yeah. not really cooling it. No, and this is the thing I don't like to say, but I'm going to say it. I looked at our housing dashboard you know, versus all the other down that I've looked at. And when housing prices go down, uh, there was not any case where it didn't cause a recession. Now, unfortunately, they're going to go down. Uh, but then we don't know about the trillions of stimulus that came in front of it, right? Which right. is totally unprecedented. And we don't, and I can tell you also now that I said that, is that before the 08 crisis, there were, you know, 14 months of house inventory for sale. Prices had been declining for years. And, and there was also way, way more supply of, of home starts and building than, than here by hundreds of thousands of units. Right. Correct. So the problem here when I tell you we're going to have some pullback from the housing market is you're going to immediately conclude that we're going back to 08. And the housing dashboard also is pretty conclusive. You can look at it yourself on ZRS. Um, and you see that, you know, we're at six months standard inventories. We're at housing starts that are somewhat normal over 20 or 30 years. And really what's been out of shape here is the prices. But not the fundamental, you know, supply inventory environment that was completely distorted by what happened in 08. So right. I think this is the problem here is when I represent a slowdown from housing uh, to all of you, you're going to think we're going into this massive panic. And that's right. not the case. It actually is not the case. But I, I got to tell you, a slowdown is going to happen. Well, it will for sure, just because yeah. the rising rates are going to price out a certain percentage of the buyers, especially in the very expensive coastal markets. Right. And but, so then we got to get into a situation where what is the dynamic? Is it just people leaving the coastal markets because now we have remote working? Is it going to cause a boom in St. Louis and, you know, Kansas City and But Abilene? those are already booming. See that? Yeah. Problem, right? Like prices are up 20 or 30 percent, even in St. Louis, and the inventories at record lows there as well yeah. with multiple yeah. offers. So yeah. not as crazy multiple offers as, you know, parts of Florida where there's 100 bids on a single house, but there might be eight bids on a house in St. Louis right, right. now. So what, what will the rising rates do? with with this kind of environment i i hate to say it's different this time because it never is really but we do have different dynamics with the work from home with the combination of baby boomers you know ten thousand of them retiring every day able to move wherever they want to most of them are moving into the sunbelt as well um 
And then millennials and even Gen Z's, two of the largest generations now, you know, in the home buying age brackets and wanting to buy. And then we have the flip side, those millennials, a little bit older millennials who maybe were renting for the last 10 years are now scared about rising rents. And so they may be looking around in some cities and areas where it's now cheaper to buy even with 5% mortgage rates than it is to rent, or they maybe just psychologically want to lock in a mortgage rate because that feels more stable to them. They can lock it in. They know what their monthly payment mostly is going to be versus you know, a 10% or in some cities like Miami, it's been 20% increase in uh, apartment rental prices. So all of these dynamics are kind of in play that makes it very different from 2008, as you mentioned, and then maybe even different from almost any other housing market in the last like, you know, 30 to 40 years. Maybe maybe young baby boomers in like the 1980s was the last time <laughs> that we had, you know, a, a generation of a huge generation like this all wanting housing at the same time. Yeah, so you're bringing up the right point to talk about, which is, you know, calling for a slowdown and then manufacturing a recession at the back end of a slowdown. Um, all these dynamics, the dynamics, internal dynamics every time are unique. Yeah. And this is the problem is, you know, from an investor stock per picker perspective, as we saw in 2020, the last thing you wanted to do is sell your stocks in the face of that slowdown. Right. Right. And this is another problem here is, you know, you and I are going to have to turn to what to do about it from an investing perspective. And, you know, if you're, if you're in your 401k or your, you know, your IRA once a year, you just want to stick with it and, and let the prices wobble around. Yeah. Because the timing of this and the dynamics that are internal to this are, you know, it's just not going to be the case that someone's going to get it right. Both. Right. Yeah, you get the dynamics right. Here's the industries and stuff that are falling apart. And then you get the timing right. Yeah, I think that's crazy for anyone to think that they can try to time it. Right. And that gets back to the point we've made to people. And you've done a great job with this over the years is we've done the non-farm payrolls over the last three months. What are they tracing? The non-farms are crushing it. Right. <laughs> Bottom line. Tell the non-farm payrolls on a three-month revised basis, but you got to go all the way to the bottom of that, that survey. You do this now really well, Tracy. Yeah. They're all crushing it. They're all in the four to 500,000 range. There's no recession on the horizon, period. Right. Even just looking, I saw that they revised February up to 750, which was, yeah. the high, I think, since 1984. And that was the baby boomers after that early 1980s recession. We came out of that, the baby boomers, they all got hired in the Reagan era. And it was a you know huge like boom right then in the economy. And I I never thought we would see 750 again outside of you know 2020's bounce back, but getting rid of that, like this is a couple of years after that, and we're still seeing the 750. That's incredible. And then everyone else is like, we're in a recession. <laughs> No. Yeah. Again, we made this point to many times, and we're going to make it again yeah. and again and again and again. We're not trying to be geniuses. All we need to do is tell you what is happening now in a contemporaneous indicator fashion. 
and there is no recession, period. Right, right. <laughs> so just a reminder to those who might be new to listening to the podcast, because we have discussed this many times over seven years now <laughs> about what the indicator is. But what we would need to see is those uh, job numbers start to come down, right? And then you maybe start to get a little nervous, but you need them to go negative. Right. Or at least in the 60 or 80 on a revised basis. Yeah. You, know, you remember the, the, the civilian labor force is 150 million. It grows 1% a year typically. So you can do 1.5 million to just stick and, and tread water. So 125 on a monthly payroll on a revised basis is treading water. Okay. So when you start doing 60, 80 prints on a revised basis, you got to worry. And if they go negative for three months, you are definitely got to worry. Right. right. For those for the, who are retiring or wanting to stay in decision-making mode that's accurate, until you get, you want to be conservative, three months of revised negative or near-negative payrolls, you're not in a recession. Just don't worry about it. And we've said this over and over again. I mean, it's yeah. not about calling and being foresightful and being in front of it. It's just calling what is the case now. And this is the point we're going to make. Do not try to be a genius. Do not ask me to be a genius. Because what happens, you've done a great job of this now. Over and over, you just point out to people the revised payrolls are very high right now. There's no chance of recession right now. Period. Right. If anything, that's the overheating component. Yeah, that's totally it. Why the Fed's raising fifty basis points? Because the payrolls are seven fifty. They're they're going to raise fifty. Right. Doesn't that kind of hotness on the payrolls give them uh, a cushion to be wrong, to be more aggressive? Like they yes. can. They can clearly do the 50 now because because of that 750 in February. That's right. And that's why this is such a useful indicator. You're, 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 you're voicing opinion that's very unattractive right now, but it's actually accurate. Yeah. I mean, got plenty of room for the 50. Okay. Um, another question I had about, you know, the recession fears is that a lot of people seem to be looking at slowdowns in the manufacturing side. Or like we're seeing all this numbers out now about freight slowing down. So the shipping is slowing. Oh, that's the sign. And and a little bit more on the manufacturing side. Um, but manufacturing is, you know, barely little over 10 percent of the U.S. economy. The services side should still be firing on all cylinders as we're still coming out of the pandemic impacts, especially in like hospitality. We just had Carnival Cruise Lines saying that they just had the best week of bookings ever for you know cruises going forward. So the consumers are still feeling pretty good about travel and that leisure component. So should we even be that concerned about this, you know, a slowing in manufacturing, which we last had in like 2015, 2016, when we did have a manufacturing recession, but services is the huge part of the economy now so should we are people panicking over nothing on the on the manufacturing side no i don't think so i mean the one thing you have to remember is the you know just for this to the autos which is kind of the, the linchpin of the supply shortages because there's so many you know, thousands of parts and just a few of them missing is enough to shut the production down right typical annual run rate for autos is 16 or 17 million and if you look into it, and I just did, it's like 13 million. Why is there zero inventory in car lots and everybody's pricing up cars? Because 4 million units that are just to get to normal 
production needs for the United States are missing. That's like 20, 25 percent. Yeah. So this is the problem. I mean, you can say, first of all, the slowdown of manufacturing can be manufactured by parts shortages. It's again, this is not a recession thing. It's just a parts shortage because recessions are, by the way, are usually, you know, trying to draw down aggregate demand from excesses that happen. This is a supply event. And this is different. And, you know, we've done this before. You know, ISM PMIs and, and manufacturing slowdowns are generated by a number of sub-indices. And it does require you to, to investigate these sub-indices to understand the dynamics. The dynamics here is they'd love to make 17, 18, 19 million cars. They just can't because there's missing parts. And this is something that will resolve itself. These are engineering and technical and supply chain issues that are obviously going to be resolved themselves. But the, the length of time is quite substantial. I mean, same with the oil prices. I mean, why are we doing the strategic petroleum reserve? Why does it make sense for six months? Because the sanctions on Russia, eventually people will work around the need for Russian oil and gas, but they will need six months to figure it out, at least. The idea that you know oil prices are going to go down tomorrow because it's all going to work out, just like the supply shortages, we're forgetting how many months of time these, these problems have take to actually sort out. These are the logistics. And the way I would tell you to, to sort this out, go to the ISM manufacturing and read the comments, the comments section. I put them out of my monthly market strategy report for you. But really, all you need to do is go there and look the, to the comments of what the suppliers are telling you. Do not read the indexes, the, the metrics, the norm. You just can read. Just read. There are anecdotal stories, but they there's 17 or 18 of them, so you'll get a picture of how it really is working for these people. Right. Um, yeah, that's always super helpful. You can look at some of the regional PMIs, too. They usually include some comments in there, too, on some of the regional reports. That's also interesting the same way. You can see who's having trouble you know, just getting parts, who's having trouble even with just getting labor. Right. That's been an issue for a number of months now. Okay, so let's turn back to what should investors do? Like if I'm looking for, you know, new stocks to buy here, so I'm not scared, I want to stay invested in stocks, but um, I do have some money to deploy and I'm, you know, a little confused about where I should be going in. So we've had a bounce back in the NASDAQ and in the tech and the growth names, but the Fed is still going to be raising again here in May. So maybe I don't want to go into those, even, you know, though they're fairly cheap here, some of them. Um, do I still want to do energy? That's been leading over the last couple of quarters. Uh, the banks should be doing well, but they are terrible right now. So is that a buying opportunity? Where do I go right here? You know, I think the answer is to, you know, first stay in a lot of cash, number one. Number two is when you are going into the market, continue to allocate overweights to equities, not bonds. But do it in a regular monthly fashion. Scatter out. You do not try to time yourself in and buy stocks because it looks good now versus in a month or a month or two. Just keep yourself on regular allocations. Okay. So dollar cost. Tie your hands to them and, and then stay broad with your investments in equities. Do not you know, try all style classes. Try broad ETFs 
and do it regularly so you just don't get suckered into the volatility and the timing events that are that are coming to play here. Should I try to buy uh, dividend payers in this environment? Should I look for that? I don't know. I would over. No, I wouldn't. You know, I'd still be focused on growth and dividend stocks in a normal standard way, because I think you're going to get lower prices out of growth stocks right now. Okay. And you're going to get people bidding up the dividend stocks because of what you're talking about. And that's going to kind of throw off your investing strategy. So the problem here is, you know, I don't know. You know, look at right now, the 12 sec 11, 12 seconds at exact follow, there was utilities and energy were up this month. Right. So what on earth am I going to tell you as an investor, go after utilities and energy? That's not what I think. Okay. Well, I think energy yeah. is topping and utilities are, are a lame, sub lame subject. So I think you got to buy these other 10 sectors in equal fashion to the, to and ignore the pain and suffering issues and all the dynamics because you're going to get lower prices. Again, this is a, not a trading environment. It's a really brutal trading environment. It's a, it's a regularly spaced, you know, pension management type environment. You just ride through it. Okay. What about the banks? I think you own at least one bank, right, in your large... Yeah, and it's done nothing for me. I've owned J.P. Morgan. It's gone nowhere, right? <laughs> right, right. But I mean, let's be honest. It hasn't done anything. It's the biggest yeah. one. It's the best name. It's done nothing. So should well, people... Is it on sale? Well, it's not that down that much. It's a six or eight percent, ten percent, you know. So it's just bouncing around with the broad market. It's you know with a market beta one, one point two. It's just going up and down with the market. Probably, uh, you know, and again, at some point, some type of scenario will play out in the the investing space, and and someone will see it eight or ten months before I do, and the thing will move. I mean, what the problem here is, you know, when it's, it's the usual problem, it's not what you think, it's what the big investing institutional guys think, not you. So when they get informed that the banks are a buy by whoever pays the big money for that institutional knowledge, they're going to rally. And you and I are going to get there late if we think we're going to get there. And, uh, you know, we're not going to pay the money that's going to get that knowledge out of, out, of, out of the market. Right. That's why I'm telling people to buy them now. Yeah. I think that's fine. And like I'm holding JP Morgan now. It'll bounce way faster than I think. One thing I would tell you right now about stocks is everybody, like I just said about the Russell, you know, Russell 15 months of consolidation, everybody's giving up in the small cap. So that means they're about to rally. Right. And that would be like small cap banks make up a big part of it. Yeah, that's it. So all of a sudden, everybody says the small cap banks are dead and then they move up 25%. But it's right. hard to invest in the small cap banks. So I want to tell people of one small cap bank that I did find in uh, just, it was in the insider trader originally. That's how I discovered it because there's hundreds of these small cap banks out there. So right. how do you know which one to buy? So this one had some insiders buying a couple months ago. And then I did a, more research on it and discovered that the analysts, it does have analyst coverage. And the analysts are pretty bullish on it because it is one of the smaller banks that will see its earnings rise pretty significantly as the Fed raises rates. So their net interest margin is going to rise and so will their earnings. So that's what I want to own in these smaller banks. So the name of it is Old Second Bank Corps. I own it now in the value investor. It's ticker OSBC. It's only 635 million is the market cap. It does pay a dividend, but it's not so great right here at 1.4%. But uh, it's the third largest bank in the Chicago market. I never paid any attention to it. It's actually headquartered in Aurora, Illinois. 
And they just bought out a big uh, Chicago bank. So now they're bigger, but they're still only 635 million market cap. But the analysts do like it because with every uh, rise in the um, Fed funds rates, they will see higher earnings. So even the analysts are being very conservative on what the Fed is doing um, so far up through this first raise. And they're only projecting four raises out for what they're modeling for old second bank core. And even with four raises this year, um, that would only be 100 basis points is what they were modeling in. The earnings on old second bay core are expected to be up about 20% just based on that. So I like the this kind of scenario, but you kind of have to dig around or just like uncover it in your, your local area <laughs> or some other way. Like it does come to me through the insider trader sometimes, um, or you just end up reading something from a good analyst who is a bank analyst. And then they say, here's our top 10, you know, small, little community banks to buy, or here's our top 10 larger regional banks, because um, the same analysts also recommended Comerica, ticker CMA, they're down in Texas, as a bigger regional bank that would also have its earnings benefit from the rising in the rates. They pay a 3% dividend right now, and I like them because they're in Texas, and that's going to give them some exposure to this energy boom too that's going on down there. Plus the Texas economy is red hot. So I want to own banks in areas that are red hot. So those are just like two banks that I recommend out there, but there's, there's thousands literally. So it gets difficult. Um, But you can look beyond just like JP Morgan or bank of America, the big, the big guys and look at some of these smaller ones who really depend on those uh, rates rising to have their earnings rise. But I do feel like, John, after what's it been now, uh, 14 years since the financial crisis, that the banks have been neglected mostly most of this time. And so I do feel like the tide might be turning a bit with the banks. Yeah, you might be right. Okay. um, What are we to do with some of these big tech stocks? that maybe we already owned, maybe we bought some at the lows and now they've rallied a bit here. Should I take my gains off of some of those, the more speculative ones, like say I I bought Square at the low or Block as it's now called, it's rallied big here. Should I just, should I, should I take it and run? What should I do? Well, I I said this on a TV show yesterday, I looked at the RKK innovation bounce. They bounced, right? Kathy yeah. would bounce. Big time. That's a and simple- what I said, and you can argue with me openly on this, let's do this. I said it's just short covering. And that the problem here is we're going to have many months of bouncing for these types of things, for yeah. a consolidation to emerge. And so the first run up in names that have been shorted 60, 70% is likely short covering. And you're going to get two or if not even three chances to get back in. So definitely watch them. But you want multi-month consolidations on types of stocks like Square. And so, you know, getting a big pounce, keep in mind what short covering is. That's people who bought, who sold the stock and then bought it back again at the bottom, right? So they will bounce. And all of a sudden you say, oh, Kathy Wood's brilliant. is 8% rise in RKK. Well, that's like everybody covering their shorts who made 65% over the last eight months. Right, right. Is that bullish? 
No, it means the bottom is for those guys. But then they're out. Who's in? Who's right. in to buy the bottom? Well, no one for a while, right? Right. So this is the problem. You know, any good trader will tell you you got to look at consolidation for a while. That's why I like the, the small caps could consolidate for so doggone long. But yeah, you're looking for a lot of consolidation and retesting of lows and people getting out of their shorts and creating the base that can get the longer-term investors who are institutional guys back in the game. And then, as we at Zach's would tell you, you need to see the earnings estimates go up because that means their business is going to attract those long-term buyers. And that is the other key is you're, you're looking for two things, consolidation in the price structure of the stock, and then their business starting to attract the long-term buyers. What about the fangs? Is that somewhere to hang out? I think you got to like the fangs. I mean, I, I looked in large cap returns on a model basis this morning, and they're above the small cap and mid caps because of the sheer profits of those big companies. I mean, the Googles are, you know, there's still a, P, a peg ratio of like near one for Google. So it, until the government breaks them up, you got to own them. I, I just don't. I mean, why get away from something that's 20% of the market and it has the profits that it's generating? Now, um, on that topic, I was looking around in my 401k and I realized uh, how incredibly overweighted I am on the fangs and even the international fangs like Alibaba or JD.com. In various of my equity only investments, uh, you know, if you just own the S&P 500, you already own all the fangs. So you right. get weighted in that. But if you own any kind of global equity fund, it's to my, it, I shouldn't have been surprised, but when I actually dug down and looked to see what the weighting was, I was like, oh, basically, you know, a huge chunk of my 401k is in all these mega huge tech names now. Yeah. Like overweight. And it was incredibly difficult for me to try to get out of that trade other than buying you know, the pure play small cap funds or the mid caps, which I do already own, but any kind of, you know, it's, it's more rare to find a global small cap fund. You know, usually it's large caps, even in energy, there's an energy fund and like half of it is international. And those are like, you know, in, in countries that I am already overweighted in because of the tech side, you know, so China's big on in the energy fund. You might not think that until you go and look around. So I just think it's it's really hard for people to get out of any kind of fang exposure. Yeah, I don't think they should try. I mean, it's just what okay. it is. We're going through a period where massive in tech companies have been consolidated and they are representing a core, you know, Tent pole experiences for the, the ETFs and the, and the stock market generally and the indexes generally. And that just until the government breaks them up, they're going to be part of your life. Okay. You keep talking about the small caps. So, if, as an investor, how do I play the small caps? Does that just make sense? Right. I mean, bar the R U T, right? Okay. So, just buy the ETFs. Yeah. Buy the ETFs, um, blend or growth, probably a little more biased because you want the names that people want to buy. I don't think you buy the run of value because then you get a lot of junky stuff that people want to get rid of. <laughs> right. Uh, and that, that is a problem, the small cap place. You just basically let the market price uh, for you the, the opportunities and stay out of trying to call. I mean, you can do a good job with one bank, Tracy, but you got to, like you said, you got to look at thousands of them. Right. It's very difficult. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's very difficult. So you just you let the, these broad indexes do the job for you. It's still the best advice. Okay. So you can also just get the Russell uh, in the IWM. That's IWM, a, right? Yeah, that's a basic Russell one too. If you're just interested. Yeah, Vanguard. Vanguard has some great, you know, listing of different ETFs that you may never have heard of. Go through and look through the. There's just dozens of very good, solid yeah. ETF plays, and get interested in a few of those. Right, right. With the low expense. Low, low, low expenses. They're looking, they got your back. Vanguard's a good company. They know what they're doing. They got nice, diversified, a lot of names. They, they 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 do a good job researching it. They got the analysts on their own to take a look at these things. Yeah. But the general John, what they, they show you. But John, the ETF investing is boring. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. And I do like, you know, find <laughs> a few names that, you know, are well covered, right? With good positive earnings revisions and lots of surprises in good industries. So I should be using the Zach's rank to try right. to find, you know, and multiple surprises, you know, three, four surprises in a row, uh, you know, where and you where you understand the business and why those surprises are happening, why it, where it makes sense and make sure the industry is good. I mean, uh, these are the standard things. That, there's no reason to change from the standard ways of doing this for the last hundred years. Right. What is it? What do you mean by the make sure the industry is good? A high ranked industry or. Yeah. Top top thirty percent, you know, okay. and 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 also, but not just in a in the moment, but over the last year or two, you know, that, that it's been. If you we got to think all the heat map on Zach's, go there and look, make sure that uh, you know the industry you are interested in has been hot for a good length of time, okay. and that you understand that you know, try to understand the story of why it's hot, you know, right? Say okay, I get it. It's going to be hot for you know two three more years or whatever, right? Right. Okay. I mean, sometimes we over, you know, because you and I are trying to sell financial services, we we created the impression that we're, you know, got all this super good information as opposed to letting people trust their own learning and get, you know, the basic stories right. Right, right. You you definitely have to drill down and look at what's going on behind the scenes. With, yeah, with get more confidence in your own ability to call stories out. And that is really a good thing to do. And what makes stock picking fun and why you and I like it is to get ourselves along and we get to be believers in stories. Like I just was telling you know, people I was telling Tracy about a, a hotel I was staying in Thailand and I almost got her to buy a reservation. <laughs> That's correct. Because, <laughs> I, you know, I, I like the story. I was convinced it was a good business model, right? Right. And I sold it to you. You did. You did. Yeah. If that was a stock, I would have been all in. Yeah, you've been all in. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Okay. That's the point. Have fun with stocks. Try to get yourself on stories. And then try to, to accept that, you know, again, with the Zach's rank, what's helpful is you got to have analyst coverage. If the analysts are upgrading the estimates, the surprises are in hand over the last four months, four quarters, then you can talk your story into that and see that it's confirmed. That's the part that's key. You, your story segues with the data from the stock and the investors and the analyst community. And you're not talking to yourself. Right. Take a listen to those conference calls, too. You learn a lot on what's going on there, um, especially right now with conditions kind of changing every couple of weeks. We're about to enter earnings season again. So we're going to be getting a lot of information from these companies now on what what is happening with inflation, the labor shortage, the shutdowns in in China now, you know, the Ukraine war, 
all this stuff is going to be factoring in. So it's definitely going to be a really good time to be checking in on companies that you're interested in or that you already own to see much more than just the headline what is going on. I don't think that headline is going to tell the whole story this time. Okay, so let me recap a few of the tickers we did talk about on this episode. So in the banks, we talked about old second bank core. OSBC is the ticker there. That's the small cap one. Comerica was the larger cap bank. CMA, that's uh, in Texas. And they are the one that pays a 3% dividend. And then John still owns JP Morgan, one of the big banks, JPM in his portfolio, and he's just holding it. They're coming up with earnings soon, so that should be an interesting one. We also mentioned Block, which is formerly Square, SQ, and ARK-K. You can't can't talk about the market without talking about Kathy Wood and what's happening with the growth stocks, so um, might wanna keep that one on the watch list. We talked about things just in general, but I'm not gonna give you all the tickers because you know those. And we talked about the small caps. You can get them on the Russell through the IWM if you're looking around for an ETF on those. Or you can um, use the Zacks Rank and try to find some small cap stocks. We have screeners on Zacks.com, a basic screening tool you can use on there too. Um, And if you have the premium, you can use the Rank plus the screening tools plus some of our predetermined screens, or you can also listen to the Value Investor podcast that I do every week because I do run those screens myself and I talk about the stocks on there. So I guess I just decided on the topic for this week's Value Investor, I'm going to look for some small cap value stocks and see what's really going on on that small cap side. But as always, I'm bringing you all these stocks every week. So you want to be sure to get us somewhere, get us on Zacks or on, um, well, you can get us on Zacks.com. We have a whole podcast page. You can get us there. You can get us on Spotify. We're on Amazon Music and Apple, of course, but be sure to get us somewhere. And I'll see you again next week with some more stocks. This material is being provided for informational purposes only, and nothing herein constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. Do not act or rely upon the information and advice given in this podcast without seeking the services of competent and professional legal, tax, or accounting counsel. Publication and distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and the information contained herein does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. No recommendation or advice is being given as to whether any investment or strategy is suitable for a particular investor. It should not be assumed that any investments in securities, companies, sectors, or markets identified described were or will be profitable. All information is current as of the date herein and is subject to change without notice. Any views or opinions expressed may not reflect those of Zach's investment research as a whole.